Welcome to all of you listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention where I am coming from in this message. I will seek to speak this message out of the Spirit of God. The Word of God says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do, is to allow not my words to come forth, but the Spirit of God to rise up in me and to carry me beyond myself with the words that come out of the Spirit of God to minister to you. Christ said that the words that I speak are spirit and life. So I do not spend a lot of time preparing messages. Basically, I spend a half an hour each day meditating on the Word of God. I ask Him to direct me to a spe specific chapter. I often use the casting of lots to find that chapter. And believe me, if it's not a game and you're walking in the light as God would have us to be in holiness and purity before him, these things work powerfully under God's foreknowledge. And so I just want to share with you what God has been wanting to share to the body of Christ. Now, I have recently been uh, sharing on the messages to the seven churches, which is a little different than the casting of lots and having a special passage to speak from each week. And recently I've had a more than a longer gap of a week because of various things I'm setting up to make an income on the internet in order to facilitate things that I believe God is wanting me to do for him. So I am here to share a message where I just made brief notes after spending about a half an hour. But I do want to share on the messages to the seven churches, and this is the third church, the Church of Pergamos. <clears throat> and that is found in Revelations chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. And so I will read that portion of Scripture. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh, sh pardon me, that is the last part of the other church. It starts in verse 12, verse 12 to 17. To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath a sharp sword with two edges. These things saith he that hath, the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where in Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that told the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. 
so hast thou also them that told the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Them that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. It says in this passage, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's not just addressed to the church at Pergamos, although it is particularly focused on this church. The overall message to these seven churches is certainly addressed to those seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it is also addressed to the churches throughout history. And I briefly want to bring some background out in regards to the statement, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The Spirit of God is described sometimes in the book of Revelation in a plurality that would, some people could misinterpret as meaning that God has seven different entities of personage. But that is not the case. We know that from the whole of the Word of God, the Bible and from various other verses. But we do see in Revelations chapter 1 the first mention of this, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now we know that the number seven is represented as the number of absolute perfection in the word of God. So there is in this understanding of the seven spirits the understanding that God's Spirit is in absolute perfection. And we also see this description of the seven spirits mentioned, for example, in Revelations chapter 5, verse 6, where we read, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and in the midst of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. These seven spirits of God are seven aspects of the perfection of this one true spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You can liken this onto the colors of the rainbow. The seven colors of the rainbow make up the full spectrum of light, which is fully perfect in pure white light. And these seven spirits of God represent seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God. And he addresses, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Because this passage in Revelations chapter 5, verse 6, 
where we have the Lamb of God, which speaks of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, for those who don't have any background or understanding, and maybe very new to all of this, is God expressed into the time and creation realm. The one and only full expression of God. The word expression basically means son. And Jesus Christ is described in Hebrews 1.4, pardon me, yeah, 1.4, he is described as the full expression of the Father. So I just briefly mentioned here, without getting into it, that there is only one God, but this one God, to be truly almighty, must be able to rule in all ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond the time and space realm, in the time and space realm, and filling all space. God, described as the Father, is that aspect of God and personage that is be ruling beyond time and space and sees the end from the beginning. The understanding of the word Father is originator of all things and also of experience through time, but also of seeing the end from the beginning and being beyond the time and space realm. The Son is the full expression of the Father, and that's basically what the understanding of Son is. The Son looks like the Father in the natural realm. And the Son, Jesus Christ, is the expression of God ruling in personage in the time and space realm. And the Holy Spirit is the personage of God, the identity, the intellectual consciousness, the being of God, filling all things at the same time and being able to be omnipresence and total knowledge and total power with all complete ability of creativity so that he can appear in personage everywhere at the same time and be creative everywhere at the same time. And so we have God as the Father beyond time and space, God as the Son ruling in the time and space realm and communicating with creation, and experiencing with his creation in a more direct way and allowing the creation to have also that focus of worship in the time and space realm and the Holy Spirit filling all things. If God could not be in personage beyond time and space or in identity and conscious intelligence, if you prefer that way of describing it, if he couldn't be that beyond time and space, he could not rule beyond time and space and therefore he would not be Almighty, he would not be God. The same is true with the Son. If God could not rule in personage or in conscious identity of being within the time and space realm, he would not be God, for he would be limited if he could not be in personage in rule within that realm, as well as as the Holy Spirit filling all things. So we have one God in government with personage beyond time and space, in time and space and filling all space. So it's not three person, three gods, it's one God in personage, in three personages. Now, I just share that because in this passage here, 
where we have Jesus Christ described as the Lamb, as it was slain, having seven eyes and seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God. So out of Jesus Christ flows the seven aspects of the perfection of the Spirit of God. And another verse in the Word of God says that he goes to and fro throughout all the earth, searching for those whose heart is perfect towards him. And it is, in this case, in relation to these seven aspects of perfection. Now, I have mentioned them in the other messages in more detail, and they are uh, basically, I don't have them listed here right now. The first is, has been explained before, and it is the perfection of the fear of God, and then there's the perfection of the spirit of holiness, the perfection of the spirit of grace, which includes mercy, and then there's the perfection of the spirit of God's love, Another that's four, then there's the perfection of the spirit of faith, that's five, the perfection of the spirit of oneness, and lastly, the perfection of the spirit of wisdom, which includes the power to rule and have authority. But today, with the Church of Pergamos, now that I've given you a little background, we are going to be talking about the perfection of the spirit of holiness. And we start with verse 12, and it says, to the angel of the church, in Pergamus. Now, this word angel is the word for messenger, and it's referring to the main spiritual leader of that church. To the angel of the church in Pergamus. Right. Now, the word Pergamus means much marriage. It also means a stronghold. And so we will be sharing about that in great, greater detail. And we read here, these things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. And I want to explain this sharp sword with two edges, which is one of the things that John sees in the vision in Revelations chapter 1. In fact, it would be good to just briefly read some of that vision in Revelations chapter 1. And it says in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Here again we see the number seven representing the number of perfection. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Here, God addresses the church of 
Pergamos in relation to that vision that John saw with the sharp sword coming out of his mouth, because it is in that aspect of the vision that is the secret to Pergamos overcoming the battle that they are having to take them out. And this is also in relation to the perfection of the spirit of holiness and the spirit of God. And so I do want to explain this sharp sword and what its significance is. But before I do, I'm going to give you a background of the church of Pergamos. Pergamos experienced some significant persecution because it was a place where there was emperor worship, where the emperor demanded worship. It was also a place of much prostitution, as that was part of the practice of this worship in this city. Thus, the word much marriage. And also in Pergamos, we have a particular doctrine that was permeating and sneaking into the church, which is the doctrine of Balaam. And this is in relation to the account of the same doctrine that the children of Israel ran into in their sojournings in the wilderness before they inherited the promised land. In fact, this is the very same doctrine because it mentions in this verse to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, referring back to how Israel stumbled over this doctrine in the wilderness in order that they would be caused to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, when the children of Israel came across the children in the wilderness, Mount Seir, the children of Esau, they, um, and basically Moab, I believe, they um, did not want to, God gave them a commandment to go around them, but not to go around them, but to go by them and to ask for just basic needs and that they and they were saying to this nation of uh, Moab, we're not going to uh, take any of your, actually it's Esau, I think is more accurate. I should, I'm a little stale on that right now. It's Esau, I can be safe with the fact that it's Esau, which is the brother of Jacob. And it was because there was this relationship that Esau was the brother of Jacob. Of course, Jacob is from which Israel came forth as a nation, and Esau's the other brother. But these people did not want to comply with Israel and, and let them pass through their land to get to where they were wanting to go and to provide for them a little bit of water and food supplies. They said they came up armed against the children of Israel. And it's a bit long to share this quite amazing account, which if I had more time I would have referenced, but basically you have 
the account of the prophet, which is described as Balaam. Balaam was a prophet that was um, summoned by the king of Moab to put a curse on the nation of Israel. And it's quite an amazing account, which I can't go into here for time. Basically, God does not want him to go. But because the king offers wealth and all of the nice provisions, he eventually decides to go under the constraint of the leaders of the king to go to the highest locations and mountains and to look at this vast nation of Israel and to curse them. And every time he tells the king, I can't do it unless God gives me the word to do that. And so each time when he prophesies, he prophesies a blessing on Israel and the king becomes angry and angrier and gives greater and greater offerings. But in the end it does, it's to no avail and he loses his status, his position as his reward and because he just can't prophesy anything but blessing when the Spirit of God comes on him. But Balaam then says, I got a better idea of how you can conquer this nation. Bring your beautiful women out before them and show them how beautiful your women are and have them begin to have relationships with the children of Israel. And then you will be able to demoralize them and once you've demoralized them, you'll be able to, to bring them in to relationships with these women in such a way that you'll be able to conquer this nation. And and we have the account of how this began to happen. And when it began to happen, and some of the men were bringing these women into their tents and having sexual relationships with them and deciding to marry them, even though they were worshiping idols. And most of the religions in that, off, that area also offered their children in the fire to these demons, these idols that they worshiped. And so plague, God's judgment, begins to come upon Israel because of these things happening in their midst. And it is that, at that point that Moses and Phinehas, the high priest, as well as many of the people, are mourning before God in humility before God in repentance and seeking to stand in the gap that God would stay this plague. And they see one of these men while they're there in prayer in humility before God come into the tent with a woman and Phineas has the zeal of God come upon him and he goes into the tent and puts a spear through both that man and that woman. And because he did that, God says, because Phineas did this, he will be blessed and this plague has been stayed. And of course then Moses uh, deals with this corruption in the nation and it is routed out and I won't go into the details of that. You can read all about it. This is the background of this doctrine of Balaam. And also as we go on here, 
give you a little background of the Church of Pergamos. So you have, you have this uh, same kind of worship in this town, this city of Pergamos, that was basically the same as what was happening in, with the children of Esau. And then you have the other cult that is mentioned here, which is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And God says he hates this doctrine. Now, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitan means conqueror of the people, and it is very evident that one of the leaders in the early church became deceived and promoted this doctrine. This is indicated from the writings of the early church fathers. And basically, this was a doctrine that believed that you could have sexual promiscuity, that you could have relations with other women, and probably vice versa, women with the man, and that there was a, a teaching, uh, basically, that this was the way that you would, they even taught that this was the way to conquer people was through having these illicit relationships and presenting them before people. It was uh, quite an evil teaching, and I won't go into the details of that. In this church of Pergamos, which means much marriage, and a stronghold. There was a large idol, and this idol had an interior in it, and what they would do with people that went against emperor worship is they would take them inside the idol and then heat the idol up with fire so that the people inside would be like in an oven and baked to death. And this is probably what happened to an Tiapus, which was a faithful martyr. And it is significant to note that the church of Pergamos was able to stand against this compromise. And yet, the thing they couldn't stand against that was far more threatening was the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is a temptation that involves justifying temporal fulfillment and intimacy as being acceptable before God. It is similar to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Their temptation was to experience the satisfaction of this fruit and to actually believe that in experiencing, partaking of this fruit, that they would also be spiritually enlightened into a relationship with God. And in the doctrine of Balaam, there was the understanding of spiritual enlightenment through partaking of this idol worship that required sexual promiscuity with prostitutes.
That is the context of the church in Pergamos. And in relation to this church, God emphasizes that he has the sharp sword with two edges and that this is the secret to overcoming this very strong temptation for intimacy. Interesting that it is where Satan's seat actually dwells, is in Pergamos. This town was a very prosperous town. They had a tremendously big library. They were filled with knowledge and enlightenment as far as the intellectual realm goes. But they were also filled with great deception and idolatry. the church of Pergamos, God is saying that he is the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. So I want to share with you about this sharp sword with two edges. <clears throat> this is like a sword of light. The word of God is described in Hebrews 4.12 as a sharp sword with two edges. It says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, even of discerning the intents and the motives of the heart. And that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have our life and with whom we have to do is the way it says it. <clears throat> and this sharp sword represents the Word of God. It represents the Spirit of the Word of God. And the Word of God is also described as Jesus Christ. In fact, in Revelations 19, the Antichrist is going to be defeated and his armies because of this sharp sword of light that comes out of Jesus Christ. And I'll describe it here in Revelations where it describes the defeat of the Antichrist. And it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And it says this, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. There is two aspects to this sharp two-edged sword. One is the holiness of God, and the other is the mercy and grace of God. And these are the two core characteristics of God's being of love, which is the ultimate perfection of love. So I want to 
just go into this a little bit. Where God says that God is love. And this is a love that is described as the highest form of love, which is known as agape love. It is more than just a feeling like filial love, which is the other Greek word for love, feeling at a soul level of emotional attachment. And of course, it's far more than eros, which is just merely the other type of love, which is sexual love. This is the highest form of love, and this form of love can be defined as that quality of being that always of its own free will chooses the highest everlasting good over any more immediate temporal gratification of fulfillment. It will always choose the highest lasting good, which of course means that there is ultimate lasting fulfillment over temporal fulfillment that leaves one empty and void because there Anything that is less than the highest choice of good has an element of corruption and destruction in it. And God's being is this love. And this love is innate with integrity. This is an integrity of love that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be against this love there would be less than the highest choice of lasting good. This is the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of his love. If God's love did not have this integrity to be a devouring fire of judgment against all that is contrary to his love, it would mean that he came take would contain corruption within his being, which would mean he could not contain unlimited power and unlimited life without corruption. It would imply that God would not be able to continue to be God forever because basically what is corruption? Even looking at it scientifically, science observes the whole universe to have two laws. The first law says that matter is always there in one form or another. You can try to destroy it, but whatever form it, it always ex is existing. The second law is the one I want to focus on. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. First and second law of thermodynamics. And this law basically says that anything left on its own will always tend to go towards greater and greater disorder and chaos on the total destruction. This is basically a definition of corruption. But God's being has no corruption in it. He can contain unlimited life and unlimited power that can go on in greater and greater enlargement of love with that power and that life in creative expressions of love that are always enlarging in greater and greater realms of fulfillment. And this goes on forever and ever. Because there is no corruption in his being. And the reason there is no corruption in his being is because his love is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed, or anything else that would be contrary to his love. This aspect of God's love is known as the holiness of God. 
It is the foundation from which springs creativity that can go on in ever and ever greater enlargement of fulfillment. Because it is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification that would be less than the highest good. God so loved us that he chose the highest lasting good when he chose to express himself in greater enlargement in the creation of man. He loved you so much that in this time and space realm, he came and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, on the cross through Jesus Christ, who is the full expression and one and only full expression or Son of God. Now, I've been emphasizing the holiness of God, the integrity of his love, and this is represented as one side of this sword. It is also represented in the negative symbol in electricity, which represents foundation. That is cutting off that which is contrary to the being of God's love. So that a foundation is established without corruption, from which can spring forth creativity without corruption. That is creativity coming out of love without corruption to expand an ever and greater ever greater realms of goodness, of enjoyment, of fulfillment. So from this foundation springs forth the ultimate expression of this love in God's power to provide mercy, that his love is so pure that he could actually without violating the integrity of his love, make a way for his creation to have destiny and purpose and meaning because he made a way for there to be the assurance of forgiveness if one repents and receives his mercy revealed on the cross in the center of history. So you have the negative symbol representing cutting off and foundation, which also is seen in electricity. And then out of that springs forth the cross, the positive symbol. Out of the foundation, you have the formation of the cross, the positive, the ultimate positive of the universe. And so I am describing the being of God's love as this ultimate negative and ultimate positive, the holiness of God and the mercy and grace of God is the positive. And what is amazing is the word of God says, for example, in Revelation chapter 18, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain even before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the plans for this world to exist were laid, it was already in the being of God's love, a reality, that Jesus Christ, which is the expression of his being to creation, in his Son, it was so 
not only a capacity within God's being, but a reality within God's being. That there was that ultimate perfection of love, and there can't be anything that is more ultimately perfect than a love that without violating the integrity of its love can also provide mercy to those that through indirect temptation of the physical realm sinned against God. And so God has provided from the very beginning of time, from the time of Adam and Eve, there was one message, and it is this, that there is only one God, and that he has provided a way of forgiveness. And I don't have time to get into this right here, but I can tell you that if you look into the Word of God, you will see that it was very plain that they understood that God was the source of forgiveness, and that it was clearly implied and indicative that it was because that within his being there was such a pure capacity of love that was so great that he had the power to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. There are various verses that say things like, shall I give my children for the sin of my soul or my own body? Or, you know, or, and God, and the, and the conclusion is no. Nothing will do. And there's the understanding that forgiveness is with God. And this was ultimately manifested in his Son, which is the full expression of the being of God into this realm. And so, when we look at this sword to the church of Pergamos, what we're looking at is these two aspects, this ultimate negative and positive, which is the full expression of the being of God's love as ultimately crystallized on the cross and even in the symbol of the cross. Even the Hebrew alphabet way back when they had letter symbols in 2000 BC, 1500 BC and back, their last letter was the symbol of the cross exactly as we have it today and the way people wear it around their necks and so on. So God is speaking to the church of Pergamos here. And he's saying, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges, which represents the word of God. Jesus Christ is called the word of God in John chapter 1. The, word, the meaning of the word word is expression. So it's another understanding. There's the understanding of expression in the word word. Words are expressions. Jesus Christ is the expression of God. So he is called the Word of God in many, many different scriptures. For example, Revelations 19 says this about Jesus Christ, and it calls him the Word of God. Revelations chapter 19 says the following. It says... Maybe I'll just read a little bit of this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no man knew but he himself. And he was called with a vesture dipped in blood, 
and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The key to overcoming the temptations of this world, which is particularly a stronghold in this day and age, is this aspect in many of the churches today, is the aspect of much marriage. It says in the last days, and the days will be like the days of Noah, where they were marrying and giving in marriage and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And we see that at many of the statistics in the body of Christ today show that the church has a very high divorce rate. In many cases, the same as the world. Why is that the case? We are in an environment in this world where we are flooded on the media with pornography, on the internet with pornography, where children are unwittingly exposed to it just because of, of it being so prevalent in stores and on the media. But there's more than just that. There are the gods of amusement, the gods of pleasure, the modern idols of this present age. Christ said in 1 John, by the Spirit of God. Here the Apostle, whoever wrote that one, Apostle John, pardon me, he said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. The church of Pergamos had people, many people, attending their congregation that embraced this doctrine of Balaam, which basically was an understanding that violated the integrity of God's being of love, that did not acknowledge the holiness of God. They emphasized that God was a God of grace, that he would forgive, that he was a loving God, that he would accept these things, that it was understandable that people would fall and have relationships with other women that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to go through certain rituals onto idols in relation to having acceptance in their culture and giving honor to the emperor. Yes, Pergamus was a city of much marriage. It was also a stronghold where Satan's Seat dwelt. Satan makes his stronghold where he knows he's most comfortable, where he knows that people are comfortable in what he has provided 
for them that is seemingly very spiritual and enlightening. As Adam and Eve believed that they, particularly Eve, believed that she would be enlightened by partaking of this fruit. There was a doctrine that crept into the early church and obviously crept into this church. That emphasized this teaching, even the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was also involved in this church, had a very strong emphasis on sexual promiscuity and in practicing it and emphasizing that these things were fine. With them, it was so extreme, though, that they believed that they were used to conquer other people through it, from my understanding of what I've read on it. And I do have some notes on the Nicolaitans, which I don't think is worth uh, getting into. There was a doctrine in the church also, and I may not have this word pronounced exactly right, but there was someone by the name of Marson, if I remember right, who introduced a doctrine where he emphasized that the God in the Old Testament was a totally different God than the God that they were now worshiping. Because the God back in the Old Testament scriptures was a God which was always bringing judgment and warning of judgment. Whereas the God he emphasized was a different God because there was more of an emphasis on the grace of God after Christ. But of course, that's a deception. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that emphasize the holiness of God. Paul the Apostle said, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And there are many, many other verses. Ananias and Sapphiras were smitten dead by the judgment of God, because they lied in their hearts before the congregation and before the Holy Spirit that was in that congregation, abiding in that congregation. I'm not here to get into the many verses that I could cite. For example, the last chapter of 1 John 5 talks about this. It says there's a sin unto death. And there's a sin that's not on the death and encourages them not to, to try the bad, one's best not to allow someone to fall into a sin on the death. Paul warned the early church. He said, here you are, you're puffed up with pride and you're praising God and here there's sin in your midst. He said, you should be mourning. And he said that they're, they're going to pray that this person that committed incest in the church is delivered unto Satan so that their body is destroyed, that their spirit might be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that church, I believe, did repent and that person was restored. But that was where things were headed. Because Paul, the apostle, said we are to purge out the old leaven. That we may be a new lump in Christ. Leaven represents that which has nothing puffed up within it. No pride within it. And this church of Pergamos was deceived to be in a state that was not real. That seemed so right, that seemed 
to be okay in their understanding, even in the sight of God. But they were in a state of total deception. They had lost focus on God. They were no longer abiding in a real relationship with God. They had lost sight of the reality of who God was in their midst as the Holy One. Nowadays, there are many people that emphasize the grace of God. But it is a false gospel because it is a grace that does not emphasize the understanding of the holiness of God, the integrity of his love that will not tolerate sin. The only way we can really have a genuine reception of the grace of God is when we first have a revelation in our being of the holiness of God. That is, of the integrity of his love that will not tolerate sin. It is when we see how awesome God is in his holiness that we can appreciate the greatness of his mercy to us personally. And if we do not see how great and beautiful God is in his holiness, we will never come to be desperate to cry out for the mercy of God in our lives, to keep us from deception. We will become puffed up. And it says, him that thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. And it also says in the word of God that pride comes before a fall. It also says, he that thinks he's something, let him know that he's nothing, that he may know a relationship that is real, basically is what it's saying. It is the revelation first of the side of that sword that is the holiness of God that brings the revelation of the true mercy and grace of God instead of a counterfeit teaching that says, oh, you can come to God just as you are in your sin. And you can continue in your sin. He will accept you. He understands all of that. Often I, I have seen pastors get up and justify the gods of idleness and amusement. People want to know why there is so much divorce in the church. When you have a body of believers that spends much of their time and most of their time focused on watching sports, hours and hours of sports and other pleasures, and that's where most of their time is spent and very little time in prayer. What happens to a person's heart? It becomes hard. It forms a shell of hardness. Christ said it was out of the hardness of your hearts that you committed divorce and that Moses allowed people to divorce over these issues. When the disciples were inquiring of it, it was out of the hardness of their hearts. Hardness of heart can be illustrated as the electrons that spin around the nucleus of an atom. They form a hard shell. 
And there's the spin of things in our life. The gods of amusement, the gods of pleasure, the busyness of materialism and the desire for material gain. And these things form a hard shell around the heart so that then we do not see that ultimate negative and that ultimate, and thus that ultimate positive that is the grace of God, the mercy of God. Because we're not abiding in a relationship with God. It is reciprocated to his being of love in these two aspects because our time is all taken up with other things that we're abiding in. The only thing that can break the hard shell of one's heart is this sharp two-edged sword of the Spirit of God. It needs to come forth as a sharp beam of light from the word of his, the light of his word and pierce the very core of our being. And that can only come if we are willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and admit our need of him instead of embracing false teachings of grace that is a feigned grace instead of a genuine grace that does not come out of the revelation of the holiness of God that ignores the holiness of God, the integrity of his love, the purity of his love. Do you know that it should be that we are attracted to the holiness of God? Because it is the holiness of God that holds the goodness of God. It is out of the holiness of God that there is contained wholeness. If you want wholeness in your life, embrace the holiness of God. Begin to delight in the holiness of God. That God's love is so pure that it will not tolerate the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to his love. Begin to delight in the awesomeness of who God is. That his love is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment a blazing fire of love against all that is contrary to his love. Then you will experience wholeness in your life. And out of that wholeness shines forth beauty in the being of God. And in our own being, as we embrace the holiness of God, we experience wholeness come into our being. And we begin to have revelation of the beauty of who God is. As King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold what? The beauty of the Lord, which is that beauty that comes out of the holiness, the wholeness of God, which comes out of the holiness of God. Oh, I have a, very in-depth teaching I want to go into on all of this, which I can't share here. But if you want to understand the severity of this deception, I will give you an idea of what is going to be in part of my book and also that I plan to teach on. I've recently been doing an in-depth study. I've just stumbled across this and I've discovered from some highly qualified archaeologists they've been digging up the remains of the cities. The first city after the flood was Arudu. And here they show that there's a connection between the city of Cain. In fact, this city of Arudu, which is the first city after the flood, it's also spelled Aruk, 
This city is the very same city from the, thing, the evidence that they have that Cain built before the flood. And it is very clear from the evidence that Cain built a temple onto a foreign god because Cain became offended at the holiness of God because he saw all the consequences of God's holiness and all this suffering around him. And it is easy for us, brothers and sisters, when we see all the suffering around us and the suffering in our own lives personally, to begin to take offense in our heart, maybe not in our mind, intellectually we still believe we're in submission to God, but in our heart there's offense and so there's alienation and there's hardness that begins to come into our heart and we try to fill that void by medicating ourselves with the temporal gratifications of this life. In the case of Cain, he began to form a distorted image of God, where God was more like a dictator. He didn't see the holiness of God as the beauty that was issuing out of it. Therefore, he didn't recognize the greatness of God's mercy and grace. And so he began to form an image of God in his heart as a dictator that required performance. And so he brought his offerings before God. Well, I can't get into it. So he set up this temple to his own image of God. And then this city that's the first city after the flood, the son of Ham, which was Cush, colonized it. And the next one was Ham. And I can't go into it. Ham is believed to have been fathered by Cush, but not the actual son of Cush. Some indication of that, that he was impregnated by a fallen angel. He was 11 cubics tall, and there is, you know, there's all the writings on this. There's many clay tablets that have been dug up on all of this, and it's very in-depth. I found a lot of this at a website called Red Moon Rising, in which you can also get a book there which I believe you can download for free in PDF, which is an in-depth, tremendous book by this archaeologist. But this city of Arudu, Nimrod, began to make it into a tremendous city with magnificent buildings and so on. And to make a long story short, Nimrod, if you look at some of the writings in these clay tablets which have been translated, I believe it's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Nimrod says things like this, I will take vengeance on God because he caused the flood. And he began to develop a total antichrist system which conquered the whole then known world, including Egypt, before the dynasties of Egypt began. This is what's all in the archaeological evidence. I'm not saying this presumptively. And in Ur, which is the city in which Abraham came out of, there was the moon god that was set up in the temple that Nimrod built, that they would worship the moon god. And you can then trace the moon god to the Babylonians and how that came into the Arab peoples, which built this stone with 360 gods before Muhammad came. And the top god of, that they acknowledged was the god over them all was Allah. That was before Muhammad. And that god was known as the moon god. And Nimrod emphasized his vengeance against God and that he would take vengeance on God. And he emphasized violence and he formed a counterfeit god his own image of God. 
that demanded submission and performance and had no understanding of a God of love that could be so perfect in his love that he could be transcendent out of the holiness of his love with the power to provide mercy and assure forgiveness to those that would repent and receive his perfect atoning being of love that is known through the animal sacrifices before he came as pointing to God as the source of forgiveness. And I can't get into that for time. And ultimately was revealed in Jesus Christ who is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so in Pergamos, we have the worship of the emperor. But in the church today, we have a stronghold. Pergamos means stronghold as well as much marriage. And the stronghold is the hardness of heart. And what does the hardness of heart cause? It causes the church to go through their spiritual activities, even charismatic churches, and go through the forums and have the nice sermons, but fail to know the breaking of the hardness in their hearts that will cause them to cast off unholiness and uncleanness. Because of the hardness, there is an adultery in the church from God because it is loving the world, because it is justifying these things. And I see pastors get up, and instead of being an example to inspire people in the direction of holiness, they get up and talk about the sports. And all everyone's cheering, oh, wow. These are the idols that God is calling North America to repent of. If the church wants to see true revival, they need to repent of the idols of the gods of amusement and of pleasure and of materialism. And the leadership needs to repent that they have encouraged these things when they shouldn't have. And then they have the rashness to go ahead and on top of it say that those that would be condemning of what they are condoning are legalistic are bringing people into bondage. I don't believe in bringing people into bondage. I don't believe in laying a rule on them that they can't watch the sports game or that. But let's not be those that encourage those things in the body of Christ. But emphasize the importance of not loving the world, of walking a life that is pure and clean before him. Word of God says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. God has called us to be holy and without blame before him in love. And it is because of the hardness that is in people's hearts that there is so much divorce and marriage and remarriage in the church. Because there's an adultery with the world, there's an adultery between one another. There's a hardness of heart. And I will never forget the lady that came up to me after a church service and shared with me her testimony of how she was getting ready to divorce her husband because he wasn't so keen in following the Lord as she was. I don't know if that's the full reason. But God started to challenge her heart to do something she didn't want to do. God was telling her to take the towel from the washroom and go and wash his feet. She finally did it. And as she began to do it, he said, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. But she did. 
And tears started to roll down his eyes, and tears started to roll down her eyes, and they were reconciled. The hardness was broken. God is calling us as the body of Christ to let that sharp sword of the Spirit of God pierce the hardness in our hearts. To be like the woman that came before the Lord and broke the alabaster block of those that alabaster box that was so precious, the things that are so precious in our life that we have become enthralled with and captivated by, that have taken up all our time away from spending time in fellowship with God and making mere religious activity and performance can also be making something else rather than a relationship with God become an idol in our lives. The Lord is calling us as the body of Christ. In this day and age, we should be awake. We shouldn't be deceived and blind. But I will tell you that the name of God is I am that I am. That basically is saying that he is the very source of reality. He is also called Yahweh, Yahweh, the self-existent one. He is also known as Elohim, the Almighty's one. But the real thing I'm wanting to emphasize here is that God is the very source of reality. And reality, truth, is defined as that which is real and is reality. And reality is defined as that which is unchangeable, everlasting, and indestructible. Reality has no corruption in it. Reality is God's love in its ultimate perfection of holiness and grace. Or you can say of truth and grace. And it is the truth and grace of God that we need to enter into. And the way we do that is to let go and let God out his way, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. I could speak for a long time. I have lost track of the time because I forgot to turn the timer on. But I want to share this with you, that the secret to overcoming all things is to repent and to let that sword shatter the deception of unreality in your life. You need, the only thing that will satisfy the core of your being is the reality of who God is, abiding in the very inner depths of your being. Let that trumpet split the sleepiness of your life with awakening. Let the light of his word pierce the darkness of your life with awakening. As that old hymn says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. There are many of us that are in bondage, and we're in a state of total sleep. We're not awake. We are not even aware of the hour we're living in and how urgent it is. Do you know that by September there may be a total world economic collapse? And that there's all the indications that Russia and a 
China are planning to attack the United States with nuclear-tipped cruise missile warheads. Look at the prophecies of Henry Groover and others that have prophesied that this would happen to the states. Do I want that to happen? No. My prayer is that the church would wake up, that they would repent, that these judgments would be minimized. But most of the churches are just going on the same old way as if nothing's going to happen. And they're going to be those that knew not until Noah, until the flood came and took them all away because they're not living in reality. They have not allowed the sharp sword of the Spirit of God to pierce their being that would cause the hardness to be broken. There are two things in many churches that there needs to be repentance over. One is over unholiness, over condoning all of these idols I've mentioned. And the other is over not letting the Holy Spirit move in the body of Christ, over having control. God is not satisfied with denominations. He is wanting a bride that is pure and spotless without blemish and wrinkle. God is not satisfied with control. He wants us to love one another as he loved us. To receive one another as Christ received us as sinners. It is in the way we truly were born again, if we were in the first place, that we are to walk. It says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That involves a circumcision of the heart that is ongoing, which only happens as we learn to have a life of prayer, of seeking him, of putting him first so that we find grace to cast off the things that would hold us in captivity, that we may enter into absolute liberty, fellowship with Christ, to be prepared as his bride in these last days. Paul the Apostle said this concerning the body of Christ. He said that God has so tempered the body together that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. So when we repent of control, we facilitate each member of the body to move in the gifts of the Spirit so that God can pour a more powerful gift on the one that is not so highly looked up to. So that those that tend to be looked up to in the natural are humbled. Those that tend to be dejected are raised up. So the mountains are brought down, the valleys are brought up, and the crooked places are made straight and the rough place is smooth. Then all flesh shall see the glory of God. Churches wonder why so few people come to the prayer meetings or, and how they're, they're so lacking in fervency. Make the church service a prayer meeting. Leadership, get on your faces before God and humble yourself and call the congregation to start their meetings on their face, just being in awe of the holiness of God. So that the idols are broken, so that the stronghold of the enemy of the church is broken of adultery with the world. God is calling us as his people 
to love God with all our heart and to love one another. And as it were to get before one another and wash one another's feet with the word of God, I pray that you would receive this message. And I look forward to continuing to share the word of God. Thank you for listening to this message.